Until the age of 15, she never met a religious Jew. How this Israeli girl became one of Israel's most famous and influential women. Sivan Rav Meir is here today, and I'm thrilled to talk to her because she is so inspirational. Everything she says is gold. And the focus of today's episode, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a blessed memory, 29 years since his passing. I'm going to share a little bit about my experience as a Lubavitcher and my memories from Crown Heights and beyond. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your talented and lovely host, Carla Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 119. 119. Shalom, shalom. Welcome. It is a beautiful day here in the land of Israel. It's going to be hot. It's that time of year when I cannot have enough hats accessible to me because I'm in and out the entire day. I'm on my porch, off my porch, on my porch, off, off my porch, downstairs to take the garbage and to get something from the mailbox, in and out. So I live this like, especially in the summer. So I am very, very careful with my skin. At least I try to be. And it's hard because the sun here, it's, it's a Middle Eastern sun. So if you see someone that looks like me walking down the street with a giant not flattering hat on their head. I am protecting my skin. I am protecting my face for my grandchildren so they recognize me one day. <laughs> I have too many freckles that are starting to look like bigger freckles. Let's just put it that way. So I'm very careful with the sun here. I don't mind it though because I'm a Florida girl and I can take the heat. That's right. All right, some positive news from the land of Israel following a terrible terrorist attack, which I'm sure everybody heard about. In case you didn't, four people were killed in a restaurant in Eli by two. Eli Israel, that's, that's the name of the yeshuv or the city or the establishment, whatever you want to call it. It's Israel. And they were killed by a terrorist in a restaurant. So that's pretty horrific. Um, in the meantime, Israel is building like never before. Record high in new construction in Judea and Samaria. Now, I can tell you, I live in Beit Shemesh, and... The city has completely transformed since I moved here. It used to be Ramat Aleph, Bays, and Gimel. Now it's Till, I think, Lamed. <laughs> there are neighborhoods popping up all over the place. All the places that, I, that, that were completely bare when we first drove in here and found our perfect forever home. But they're building like crazy. As a matter of fact, when you leave Beit Shemesh from the back, I like to call it from the back. If you live there, maybe it's the front. You can see the mountain where they cut the Jerusalem stone out of, the masonries. They, you could see the amount of stone that they're extracting as they continue to build all these apartments and all these homes. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Just don't take away my view. I have a perfect view. There are homes across the street, and then there's a little mountain where people walk their dogs and watch the sunset. So if you could just leave us a little bit of view, a little bit of green, that would be great. But I am all for building, building, building. That is the message we need to send to the world. I'm sorry. Did you say, you said we're what apartheid? What lo shamim lo shamim? We're building over here. We're bu- we literally cannot hear you over the noise of construction. So the Jews that were murdered were from the town of Eli. In Eli, they're going to build another thousand houses. And to anyone who says that when we build, it's provocative, let me tell you something. Everything Israel does is provocative. You know why? Because we exist. We exist. Doesn't matter if we're building or we're not building. So why not build? Do you understand or do you overstand? I don't know, to me, it's fairly simple. In other Israel news, an Arab that was married to a Jewish woman, yes, there are many of them here in the land of Israel, too many. Well, the Arab husband kidnapped the Israeli kids from their home in central Israel. I live in central Israel, by the way. So her children disappear. She calls Yad La'achim. That's the organization here that deals with these kinds of things. They immediately, like, this is serious stuff. If Jewish children disappear into the Palestinian Authority's authority, like, that is a big problem. That, that, that's terrifying stuff. So Yad Lachem gets on it immediately. National Security gets on it immediately. The, the Army, Security Services, the whole spiel. Obviously, everyone starts davening um, that the kids should be safe because you just don't know. You just don't know with these people. Baruch Hashem, they found the kids. And they were reunited with their mother. And now it's up to Israel to prosecute this father uh, for bringing these Israeli Jewish children into Palestinian territory. And that's just, you know, local news. That's not even international news. Um, But yeah, it's scary stuff because people are so open-minded. Their heads fall out. And they're like, why? The Palestinians are just like us. And I've seen a couple of these shows where they have like a restaurant up north in the Galilee, and he's an Arab, and she's an Israeli, and they cook food, and people come from all over, and everything's sababa, and they share their story, because, you know, things seem all fine and peachy, and it affects people, and they get involved with these Arabs, thinking, like, maybe they're all wrong, like, maybe, you know, I should 
reply to that Arab teenager who's staring at me and I don't know, whatever it is, we should never know, but we should definitely be aware that it's a big problem. And Yad Lachem has thousands of horror stories from secular Israeli girls who got involved with cool Arab teenagers. Maybe they lived in the same cities. Maybe they were in Mamila walking around. And it always ends badly. It just always ends badly because the boys are excited just to get an Israeli girl. Like that's just like a feather in their cap. And there's the possibility they're just a terrorist. I mean, the whole thing is just extremely, extremely, extremely dangerous. But Baruch Hashem, in this case, there was a happy ending. And all is well in Eretz Yisrael. Now, if you are listening on Thursday, today is Gimel Tamas, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's 29th Yeretzite, his Hilula. So out of respect for my many Lubavitch listeners, hi guys, I'm just going to share a couple of things you can do if you want to observe this day. First of all, you can light a candle, a Yeretzite candle, which I did, give tzedakah, extra tzedakah, specifically to an organization that the Rebbe supported. Um, you want to daven like a mensch and read Chumash with Rashi, Chitas, and the Tanya of the day, of course, Tayyam Yaim, just a little inspirational vart that every person can learn something from. And then just go out there and visit youth centers and take on the world and tell them about the great love that the Rebbe had for them. That's, that, that's what you have to do on the Rebbe's yard site. So I decided that I'm going to share a little bit of inspiration here based on my experience as a Lubavitcher Chassid, my memories with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, some of the stories that my family went through. Keep it brief enough, and then we're going to get on to a great interview with a great woman. All right, the first thing I'm going to share is a story about my great-grandfather, Rabbi Peretz Muchkin, and Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> no, they had nothing to do with each other, so please don't quote me anywhere on the internet. What happened was, in the early 1960s, the Tenenhaus family, which is now married into the Felig family, which is my father's side, they moved to Montreal, and their father, David Tenenhaus, became the director of the secular studies at Beis Yaakov. In Montreal, Mr. Tenenhaus meets Reparats Muchkin. Now, my great-grandfather, he was not a rich man. He made a little bit of money from his homemade wines that he made in his basement in Montreal. But he was full of life, and he never complained. But still, Mr. Tenenhaus was bothered by it, and he had a private yechidus with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, a private meeting in 1961, and he brought it up. He told the Rebbe, he said, Reb Peretz Muchkin goes with a torn kapata, torn frock. And before he comes to see the Rebbe, he has to borrow a nice one. Well, meanwhile, Marilyn Monroe is making $5 million a year. That's what Rabbi Tenenhaus said to the Rebbe. He said, how could Hashem allow a righteous man to live in such poverty? So the Rebbe told him what I know to be true, that my great-grandfather, Reparitz, he was totally fine with his lot. He did not care. He didn't need to be rich. He didn't even realize that his kapata was torn. He said, your dilemma doesn't even bother him. He said, on the other hand, the actress you mentioned, with all of her wealth, she's unhappy. She's unhappy with everything that she has. And then a few months later, it became known how unhappy Marilyn Monroe had been, and she committed suicide on August 5th, 1962, at 36 years old. And my great-grandfather went on to be a renowned mashpia of the Chabad community in Montreal. He raised a beautiful and large Hasidic family that I'm proud to hail from. And yeah, my grandfather also did not care what his kapata looked like. My grandmother, on the other hand, was very concerned. So my grandfather was impeccable. The next story I want to share is about my paternal grandmother, Mrs. Miriam Felik of Blessed Memory. I'm going to take you back to 1951. My grandmother came from Poland completely alone. The Holocaust had destroyed her entire family and her dog and her grandparents and her memories and her innocence and, and everything. And she marries my grandfather, 18 years old, and they travel to meet the Rebbe, who had just become the leader of Lubavitch. And my grandmother tells the Rebbe all she wants is a big family. But she's afraid because she has no one to help her. She said, will the Rebbe adopt her? And the Rebbe said, automatically, yes. And they had a decades-long relationship where whenever my grandmother needed to talk to the Rebbe, the Rebbe made himself available for her. And that's why my grandmother had 10 children, because the Rebbe said to her, you have family, I'm your family. And my grandmother was a worrywart to her last day. And the Rebbe told her, be a warrior, not a worrier. She also told the Rebbe that no matter how hard she tries, she can't keep her house clean with all these kids around. And the Rebbe said to her gently, but I see your husband's happy and he looks happy. 
And my grandfather was. He wasn't demanding. He was super chill. He went to the beach. He played tennis. And he supported my grandmother and sent his kids to Lubavitch. But it was with the Rebbe's fatherly presence in my grandmother's life that she was able to cope with the loss of her entire family. And she would ask the Rebbe whatever she wanted. She once asked the Rebbe, how do you thank Hashem after you lost everything? And the Rebbe helped her through it. She once told the Rebbe that she feels the safest in the family car with the whole family. Because that's where she felt like everyone was with her. Another story is that when my uncle opened up Chabad of Hollandale, the Rebbe was at, at that time not sending out personal letters to everyone who requested. Lubavitch had become so big at that time. And my grandmother really wanted that the Chabad house in Hollandale should have a signed letter from the Rebbe. So she called the Rebbe's secretary, Rebbe Benjamin Klein, and she said, my son-in-law is working so hard. Please, can the Rebbe send us a letter? And the Rebbe sent a letter for my grandmother, for her son-in-law, and that was the last letter that the Rebbe ever signed. And a few hours later, he had a big stroke. So, as you can see, I am not just a chassid of the Rebbe's, I am one of the Rebbe's children on both sides. The Rebbe was a father figure, and he cared for my grandparents, and he respected the sacrifice they made for Judaism. My grandmother sacrificed her family. My grandfather was wheeling and dealing passports under KGB Russia to get Russian Jews out of there, including the Rebbe's mother. The rumors are true. My grandfather was a lion, <laughs> a tiger. I have tiger's blood. But yeah, my connection with the Rebbe is strong and deep. I did have the merit of seeing the Rebbe a number of times, and I want to share with you those experiences. But first, life is stressful, so I hear. And, and we should all have something that can help us get through those moments when we're like completely strung out. So I'm going to tell you about Queen Tulsi, the perfect solution for your stress, a 100% natural supplement specifically designed to help you find relief from all those daily pressures of life. Whether it's mood swings, maybe you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, or are your moods erratic, just up and down, depending on what day of the month it is? Are you, are you overwhelmed, stressed out? Well, Queen Tulsi is here to support you. You will experience a sense of calm like never before. The herbs, they help you handle stress, and they boost your mood, and you feel peace and tranquil. Plus, they have antioxidants, so your skin is going to look great. Your skin will be protected from free radicals, damage, and aging. I mean, if that's not a reason enough to take the pill. Plus, like I said, it's 100% kosher, a perfect blend of five natural herbs, no artificial ingredients, and yeah, you'll feel like a queen every single day. So use my coupon code, and you're going to get 15% off. Head over to my show notes, click on the link, carolinebasshealth.com, and learn about Queen Tulsi and how it can help you. Queen Hanala will get you 15% off any of your orders. So what are you waiting for? Try Queen Tulsi Daily Stress Relief and reclaim your inner calm. I was 13 when the Rebbe passed away. The Rebbe who was the center of my life, the center of my parents' life, the center of my grandparents' life, the center of my community's life, the center of New York's life, the center of the world's life. The Rebbe was the center of everything until I was 13. And everything seemed very clear then. Mashiach was coming. Mashiach was coming. The Rebbe said, Mashiach is coming. We just have to do a little more and we're going to do it and we're trying and we're going to learn and listen and try and, and just aspire to be a lover of Hashem, a warrior for Hashem, like the Rebbe was. The Rebbe was pure love equally for Am Yisrael and Hashem. There was never a compromise. The Rebbe struck the perfect balance every single time. And that's why people came to the Rebbe, because when the Rebbe looked at you, you knew that the Rebbe was looking at you without judgment. But back to when I was a kid. So my mother is from Crown Heights. That means we went to Crown Heights for Yom Tif, every single Yom Tif whenever possible. And we'd come to my bubby's house with our old brown 70s suitcases and we'd be exhausted, but we'd be excited because we'd be in Crown Heights and the Rebbe's in Crown Heights and our cousins are in Crown Heights and Bubby's in Crown Heights. And that's where everything is charged, supercharged with this energy that the Rebbe projects 
amongst his chassidim. So there was never a doubt when I was a child what was right, what was wrong. The Rebbe had such clarity and made himself so accessible to people that the world just seemed a little less confusing. So that was the first 13 years of my life. I remember when the Rebbeson died. I was eight years old, and I woke up in the middle of the night because there were grown-ups in the house. And I came out of the room, and I was excited. I was like, ooh, like, what's happening? And like, someone shushed, hushed me like, the Rebbe's wife passed away, and now the grown-ups are talking to their family in New York, and we're going to go to the funeral. So that, that's what I remember at eight years old. But I didn't have a deep connection with the Rebbitson because most Hasidim didn't. Most people didn't know her. She was very private. My grandmother knew her, and, and there were stories that I knew firsthand, and, and I knew, she, listen, she was the Rebbe's wife. Like, that's all, that's all we had to know. But back to when I was 13, I remember when the Rebbe got sick that at first there was a sense of denial like concern, serious concern, obviously. Nobody wants the Rebbe to be uncomfortable. But there was never a, a thought that the Rebbe was anything less than invincible. In the Hasidim's eyes, the Rebbe is invincible. And the reality just never materialized for Lubavitch. I remember also being in 770 a number of times when the Rebbe was already very unwell. And he used to come out on the porch. There was a curtain, and the curtain would open, and, and the Rebbe would be there. And the Rebbe looked gaunt, and the Rebbe looked old, and the Rebbe looked ill. But he was the Rebbe, and it was just the presence of the Rebbe. Th that's all it took, because we all knew what the Rebbe was. We knew his sikhais, and we knew what he felt on the issues. And we knew how sensitive he was, and we knew how patient he was, and what a schus it was to be in his presence. And these circumstances, the positive circumstances, people would call them miracles, that always seemed to revolve and circulate around him and everything he touched. Everything, every life, every soul, every organization, every person, every chassid, every child, every woman, every man, the Rebbe touched every single person at their deepest level, in their hearts. You know why? Because the Rebbe struck that perfect balance between loving the Jewish people, and loving Hashem's Tyra, and fighting for Hashem's Tyra, and standing up for Hashem's Tyra. And everyone knows the Rebbe spoke about things that a lot of other Rebbes did not have the courage to speak about. But the Rebbe addressed them with such edelkeit, nuance, and sensitivity that it always hit the right spot no matter who heard it. That's the message of the Rebbe. Hashem made us perfect. We have a Yetzahara, we have a Yetzer Taif. And it's a battle. It's a struggle. And you're going to fall. And we're going to help you get up. But you have to keep fighting. You have to keep fighting. That was the Rebbe's message. It was never enough. You, oh, you did that? You took care of it? Yeshakayach. Now go do it again 10 times more and 10 times longer and in the ring. <laughs> I mean, the Rebbe was a visionary. Think about it. It wasn't just about the Sfarim, because there were the mitzvah tanks and the Chabad houses and the parades and the public menorah lightings and, and the Miftzayim and the perseverance to go into public schools and find Jews and put tefillin on. It was, the, it was the zeal. The Rebbe had this tremendous zeal to fight for the longevity and authenticity of Judaism. And it was so authentic that it was catchy. Like, whatever the Rebbe was doing, you wanted in on it because the Rebbe was so excited. And the Rebbe was MS. And who could deny that the Rebbe was anything but pure MS? And people came to him and they said, Rebbe, it's too hard to fight. It's too hard to fight. I can't. And I know these stories because I heard these stories. I remember Chassidim from our neighborhood struggling, struggling to hang on, struggling to do the right thing. I, I mean, the Yetzirah could thrived even when the Rebbe was alive. Right in Ishchuna, because it's that powerful. And the Hasidim, it, it broke their hearts, but the struggle was real. The struggle was real. The Yitzhahara and, and doing what the Rebbe wanted, and you know the Rebbe's right, but you, oh, you really want to do something else. But all the Rebbe wanted was that you kept keep fighting. That's it. Keep fighting. Fight for Eretz Yisrael. Fight for Jewish education. Fight for religious freedom in America. Fight for Jewish values. Fight against international terrorists. I mean, the Rebbe was brave and bold, and he spoke very strongly about Amalek and the enemies of Israel, who always strike us when we're down, when we're weak, and when we're falling apart. 
And the Rebbe told us how not to fall apart. Stay focused. Learn every day. Love Hashem. Learn a little Hasidus. Go to the mikvah. Keep tires hamashpacha. Bake challah. Light Shabbos candles. Cover your hair. Put on tefillin every day. Give tzedakah at a set time. Tell a friend about a shir. Learn Rambam every day. Say your parak of Tehillim. Celebrate your neshama on your birthday. I mean, everything. Every Jew should have a mezuzah and should be proud. Every country should know that the Jewish people are proud to be Jews and that they are here to contribute to those countries in any way that they can. And there are very few leaders that were ever as diplomatic as the Rebbe and well-respected, no matter what the issue was. And the Rebbe spoke out about Eretz Yisrael when they gave away land, and the Rebbe said they are not allowed to give away land. It's dangerous. It puts Jews' lives at risk. You're feeding into terrorism. It's not going to work. Don't do it. And when they didn't listen, they paid the price. And we're still paying the price. We are still paying the price. This week we paid the price. Four Jews, Erlacha, devoted, committed, passionate, Eretz Yisrael loving Jews who wore big kippahs and long payas and swung their tzitzes proudly. They were in a restaurant at a gas station in Chumas Eliyahu. We have one here in Beit Shemesh. I don't personally like it. I don't get the whole thing of just eating hummus. It's like you could have hummus with meat on top, hummus with chicken hearts on top, hummus with shawarma on top, hummus with falafel. That's it. It's no greens. And two Palestinian terrorists with machine guns went into the restaurant and struck down three young people and a patriarch of a family in the prime of his life. And that's the price that we pay for not listening to the Rebbe. The Rebbe knew what was right about Eretz Yisrael. The Rebbe knew what was right about America. And that could be seen in all his political alliances and, and public statements. I mean, the Rebbe completely cared about the entire world. This wasn't like the Jews are the best, so we're going to focus on their well-being. No, no, no. This was we, you, are going to bring Mashiach. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to put this planet to action. We're going to get every single Jew on board. We're going to find every Jew, no matter where they live. In Yehopetzville, Shabbat Yehopetzville. When I was singing, the Shluchim would fly me out to sing. I sung in so many countries that I, I had a passport full. I was in Chile, in Colombia, in Barranquilla. They might be the same places. In Bogota. <laughs> um, I was in China. I went to the Shluchim's mikvah opening, and I sang there, and that was just an incredible experience. I mean, who often goes to China? I mean, back then, for sure not. I was in Alaska for Shabbos, and yes, it was so cold. And I also saw ski dogs, and I saw a moose in, in the Shluchim's backyard. True story. I was by the Greenbergs, and it was a super cool experience. And I remember going into a grocery store, and before you walk in, there's like a grill so that everybody can shake the snow off their boots. Yeah. And everyone was wearing jean skirts because apparently it's easier than jeans that get waterlogged in the snow. See, I was in Alaska. I was also in Hawaii for six months. That's right. I went in my second year of seminary to Hawaii and I homeschooled for the Krasniansky's. And I saw how hard they work for the Rebbe. I'm not saying it's that difficult in Hawaii. It's one of the better places to get a, <laughs> a Chabad house hookup. Let's put it that way. But at the same time, there were a lot of things that were very difficult. This was before social media. They were far from family. And they were sending their kids on an 11-hour flight from Hawaii to Crown Heights to live with their older parents so they can go to a proper Jewish school. But you can't send kids who are 8 to 9. It's like it's just unreasonable. So they would fly girls in to come be in the Chabad house, and we'd have a curriculum, and we'd have to teach the kids. So I went, and I saw what the Rebbe's vision looked like. And I saw the Jews. I saw these surfer Jews that without the shluchim would, would be completely lost in the pagan lifestyle of the Hawaiians. And there's a lot of Avaidazara in Hawaii. And then between these international travels for, for a number of years, I was just going to local Chabad houses. And by local, I mean anywhere in the States, just one state to another. And I remember seeing time and time again the same thing. Shluchim, excited, determined, passionate, with a massive budget. <laughs> deep faith and a lot of love. Love for all these people that came their way and all kinds of people came their way. I mean, when you open up a Chabad house in Portland, Oregon, you're going to see all kinds of people, but they're always accepted with love. 
I was by my cousins in San Francisco. And yes, they were shluchim that were able to connect with those people with that mentality. I wouldn't send them to Texas. The point is that no matter where shluchim were, they all had the same clarity. I'm not here to judge. I'm here to find the pintle yid. I'm here to spark a fire and get that yid to look towards the Torah and look towards Hashem. And I'm going to do whatever I can. And it's not going to be easy. And it might not be ideal for my kids. It might not be ideal to send a kid when they're 10 years old. I'll do the best I can. I'll fly seminary students out. We'll make up with extra love. We'll try. We'll try to give our kids a life that is full of excitement, just like we have for doing what the Rebbe wants. And that's what Shluchim did. And that's why Chabad exists and flourishes until today. And the Rebbe's vision has been fulfilled. Because when you do something with the proper balance of love for Hashem and love for the Jewish people, it works. And that is what we can learn from the Rebbe. I think every single one of us can ask ourselves if the things that we do and say are truly coming from an authentic source. Are we truly doing this, L'Shem Shemayim? Are we truly doing this because we love our fellow Jew and we want to connect with him, neshama to neshama, so that we could do this together? Why do two Jews need to be together? What's the purpose of two Jews together? Only to fight for Hashem. Only to fight for Mashiach. Only to do the work so that we can fulfill Hashem's desire. The desire to be a light unto the nations, to inspire the world through acts of goodness and kindness so that we can usher in an era of true peace where the sick will be healed and our loved ones will return and there will be no war or unnecessary bloodshed There'll be no terrorism in Eretz Yisrael. Our struggles will be reduced because Hashem's rachamim, Hashem's mercy will pour out onto us and we will have clarity and we will be able to understand ourselves and our struggles and recognize that everything comes from Hashem, our creator, our enemies, our struggles, our egos, and our tests, all of it. But the only way we're really going to be able to overcome all of this and bring in this era of Mashiach that the Rebbe so desperately, so desperately worked for. I mean, I was talking, you'll hear actually in the, in the upcoming interview, the Rebbe didn't take one vacation day in 50 years. The only time the Rebbe left Crown Heights was to go to Camp Gan Yisrael, upstate New York. The rest of the time the Rebbe was working, and I know this because I remember that the, we were constantly in, in check with what the Rebbe was doing, whether we were in Florida or Crown Heights, which we were all the time. And the Rebbe was on a schedule that the Hasidim were participating in, and the Rebbe never stopped. It was just 50 years nonstop of passion for Am Yisrael and for Hashem and for Eretz Yisrael and for what's right and for America and to build up after the Holocaust. I mean, the Rebbe was like nobody else that I ever knew and my parents ever knew and my grandparents ever knew. And I had a tremendous chos that the Rebbe looked me in the eye a number of times. I have a picture here. And I'm looking at the Rebbe. I'm wearing a red sweatshirt. I'm holding two jackets. My sister's behind me. I see Rabbi Groner. I see Rebbe's in Sternberg and a lot of big shaitals. And the Rebbe's handing me a dollar and the Rebbe's hands on it and my hands on it. And the Rebbe's smiling because I was his chassid. And the Rebbe believed in me. And the Rebbe made me feel like he believed in me. Actually, after I got married... I came back to America, and the first place that I went was to the Eichel, because Hasidim, whenever they come and go, they touch base with the Rebbe. So we landed in America. I had been gone for a year. We went to the Eichel, and we wrote a pun. I wrote a letter. I wrote a, a letter saying I'm back in America. It's been a hard year for me. I want to continue singing. I want to make sure that my reputation is good here. And I said, I want more. I don't want to just sing for Lubavitch. I want to sing for Beis Yaakov. I want to sing for all the schools. I want them to accept me because I am prepared to be that singer and do a great job and represent you, Rebbe, Lubavitch, and, and my values and my standards and my traditions and the whole thing. So give me a bracha. It should work. I come out into the room after the honey cookies and coffee. Like you go into the room right at the entrance and there's a big screen and the gem videos play 24-6. And what do I see? I see Avram Freed. I see Avram Freed. And the Rebbe's talking to Avram Fried, and the, uh, and the Rebbe tells him in that clip to give tzedakah before every performance, which Avram Fried does. And then in the next clip, getting a dollar, is a conductor. And the Rebbe's telling him that 
from once in a while, you can wave your baton towards Eretz Yisrael, you know, to remember the Western Wall. And then it's Mordechai ben David. And Mordechai ben David says something about his wife. I don't remember. I haven't watched the clip in a while. And then there was another chazin. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember either. So I come out of the aisle and I told my husband, I said, Rafal, the Rebbe gave me a bracha. I'm telling you, the Rebbe gave me a bracha. That's the video that was playing. I've never seen that video before. I didn't know it existed. The Rebbe sending me a message that I should do good things and that, you know, uh, I'm good to go. And my husband looks at me, he goes, that's what you wrote in for? Your career? I'm like, why? What did you write in for? He's like, uh, children, bracha, parnasa, hatzlacha. You know, my husband's Sephardi. He's like, my mother, my grandmother, my grandmother's grandmother, my uncle's brother's sister-in-law's cousin for the business. You know, we have to ask the rabbi about the business. But Kitzer, he got his brachas fulfilled, Baruch Hashem. I got mine fulfilled, Baruch Hashem. And I will do my best to use this platform to share positivity and inspiration and chizuk when I can and hopefully make the rabbi proud. It's not easy. It's not easy, but I'm going to keep trying. All right. I'm extremely excited that the guest on today's episode of the Weekly Squeeze is Sivan Rahav Meir, somebody who I tremendously admire. If you don't know who she is, well, you probably don't live in Israel because every Israeli knows who she is. She's a very, very famous journalist, a public speaker, and a proud Israeli. She's also completely religious, despite being raised in a secular Israeli home. And the remarkable thing was that she transitioned into this life of being Shomer Torah Mitzvah's in front of the public eye, because she was a well-known journalist. She interviewed Bibi Netanyahu, Ruven Rivlin, Shimon Perez, Ehud Barak, Naftali Bennett, and she is extremely, extremely well-versed, intelligent, and authentic. And that's why I'm thrilled to bring you this interview with Sivan Rav Meir. Sivan Rav Meir, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. It is such a pleasure to have you. Hello, hello. Shalom from Yerushalayim. Thank you for, for asking me to come. My pleasure. All right, let's jump in. You grew up in Herzliya, Israel, in a secular home with no Torah commitment. I've heard you share that you didn't learn any Torah or know any mitzvot before the age of 15. As exactly. a parent of Israeli teenagers, I find that very concerning. So <laughs> to begin and to help people understand your upbringing. Yeah, it's possible. Look, I feel uncomfortable, you know, starting our conversation with that... Uh, uh, detail, but yeah, it's true. You can live in the Holy Land uh, without lots of holiness. And I guess the listeners, those who have been here, they see how great the country is, developing, improving all the time. And when it comes to spirituality or or tachless, practical things, Israel is moving forward. But still we have a problem. Yeah, you can definitely uh, turn 15 in Israel. I remember I never met someone who keeps Shabbat, never met someone who keeps Kashrut, and I was already 15. It's not a normal uh, situation in, in the Jewish state we founded after 2,000 years. And yeah, I definitely think we, we we should change it. I change it personally. I I started, you know, working on my Jewish skills, uh, sort of speaking. Do you feel that the current Israeli government is making enough efforts to have substantive changes in, in school curriculums? Is that is that one of the ways that we need to approach this through the schools? It's a problem. I don't. I don't think it's the government. First of all, the government changes every two. Also you know, true. We, we had five ele- five elections in three years, and it's not like now we have stability. So the political system is sometimes it's the problem and not the solution. Still, I support. You know, I have my views, my agenda. It's important. Vote. Be be active. But when it comes to Yiddishkeit, it's not the government. We don't want you know coercion, and people will be against the, the the policy, this minister or the other member of the Knesset. It's about our soul, our spirit. It's something, I think, cultural that should happen. And people want it. What I try to do on social media, on TV, radio, magazines, I see people, they love it. They feel it's part of their, their identity. And it's like something they lost and they want it back. They they, they feel it, it belongs to them. So yeah, it's a mutual, mutual treasure. I think this should be the perspective. It's not it's not about the Knesset. It's not. It's not about the budget, although it's important. You know, uh, when you pay uh, a theater or a yeshiva, when you pay to a, this club or another uh, institution, it's it's important. But it's uh, what what I do is not political. I think it's it's in the heart. And sometimes when you post something and it reaches like one million people, so so maybe that's also you know it's uh, it's 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 also a way of of promoting. Our values. It's an avenue to get to our our kids. So you're saying we need to work from the inside out, essentially. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I believe, you know, um, first of all, to be connected. I mean, we can definitely, and I find myself sometimes like a robot, you know, you're, you're not connected to what you do when you delve in, when you, when you do things automatically. And it happens, even if you are, even if you became religious, uh, you have to work, you know, you have to light the fire. Plus, I think the main word, the, the key word today should be shlichut, reaching out to people. There are so many listeners. They know people abroad. They are unaffiliated completely. No, no connection. So yeah, I believe becoming shlichim will, will also improve us, not just the world outside. It's, 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 that's the main concept. Lately, in the last few years, I think each family can adopt a different family, just invite them for Shabbos, uh, learn with someone, have a chavruta with someone who never learned anything. I mean, it, these are simple things we can do for free, but uh, it's worth, I think it's, it, it means a lot. So you're saying if Am Yisrael works on their observance overall, it'll uplift also the chilonim here in Israel because we're one nation and what we do affects each other. Exactly. I, I I don't want. By the way, I don't want people to be exactly like me. It sounds like I have a plan. I'm perfect. No one can be, be like, like you, Sivan. You're yeah. one of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we. I think we. Sh- each individual should be exactly like him, like her. I mean, Hashem gave us our special mission. I mean, there's a, the special reason you were born and I. I was born. It's not like I want people. I'm. I'm not saying I have all the, the answers and you should all adopt. You know, copy paste. No, it's a different process. Let's do it together. I can learn from people. Whenever I teach uh, students or soldiers, I learn from them. I mean, I, I, they inspire me. Something new is, 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 we're reaching together a new level. It's not like we'll take the Chilonim and we'll make them into uh, Orthodox people. It's more, I think it's in a higher level. We can create something new together here. Uh, that's, that's my dream. And, and that, no, it's, it's productive because a lot of times we zero in on small changes we can make, but sometimes it's just something more universal. Okay. Uh, another thing I've heard you mention on one of the podcasts is how Shabbos made you fall in love with Judaism. And then you got um, into it as a teenager. So I, I have many teenagers listening and I know it's a, a challenging world to be in. So many mixed messages from all directions. What advice do you have for a teenager who still may be struggling or discovering their faith, you know, feeling a little alone? confused as as to what they believe in you know going into the the head of a 15 year old in 2023 as somebody who you know made a journey a unique journey themselves at that age um i think you feel lonely sometimes i felt sometimes lonely you need to find a good friend a good mentor i had three mentors uh co- really girls they were coach coaching me uh daphna and yael and shiran they were 15 just 15 they were girls from the city of Be'er Sheva in the south of Israel. They weren't, uh, you know, no organization, nothing official. They were just normal religious teenagers from Be'er Sheva. And they cared about me. And they were, you know, they were there uh, throughout the, the, the process. You must find someone to talk to, uh, a family that will invite you for Shabbos. You're not alone. Baruch Hashem, the whole Jewish nation is with you. Your ancestors, you know, your Zaydi in heaven watches you. And your grandchildren are here. Sometimes you don't see it because now you're you feel so isolated. It's not, it's it's not it's not a private thing. It's a global national thing. So so find someone and and sometimes it's, it's embarrassing. My, can I invite myself? Yes. Can I be a nudnik? Yes. It's okay. And learn always learn. The Torah is much deeper than the news and the push notifications. Okay. Um, uh, Rashi has no Facebook page and the Rambam Rambam he didn't upload a, a story for eight hundred years. So sometimes we're, we're um, you know, we're confused because they're not here. But no, the feed news, is, it's not the only feed, okay? Go to the where. I'll show you the There's so here. much knowledge in the world. Yeah. The camera here. You yes. See? This is the real feed, okay? Go there uh, and, and, and uh, be connected to deeper, uh, deeper things. They will give you, I think, lots of physical, lots of, lots of strength. I love it. Mashpia and make time to learn. All right, let's move on because I have so many things I want to cover. You've had the opportunity to see Israel up close and personally. Uh, I'm here six years and and I'm already worn out. (laughs) The good, the bad, the ugly, and the unbelievable. We had a terrorist attack yesterday, a lot of painful moments. 
Um, you were up and center in issues pertaining to the Supreme Court, government ministries, military operations, peace agreements, demonstrations, elections, the whole gamut. My husband told me when I told him that you're on the show, he said, oh, she once interviewed uh, Prime Minister Robin. I said, really? When? So he said when she was a kid. So wh- <laughs> what is your take? And I know this is a loaded question, and I know that Ahavas Yisrael is the answer, but still, if you could get into it a little more, you know, a little more politically, what's your take on what's going on in Israel today? The, the, the depth of the animosity and, and the rift. Okay, wow. Hanale, first of all, welcome. Mazal Tov. You made Aliyah six years ago. It's not easy. It's hard. I know, you know, I visit communities. I think it uh, really, you need to be a hero in a way. Yeah, you need givura. You need heroism, bravery in order to leave and start, you know, from, from scratch. I have a friend, an American friend here. I live in the neighborhood of Nachlaot. So uh, uh, we are friends with uh, people from Shari Chesed and Rechavia really American colonies here in Yerushalayim. So a friend of mine once told me, I'm not stupid, I'm just an Ola Chadasha, you know. People think I'm, I'm, I don't understand. It's just, uh, I'm not familiar with the, with the Hebrew. So first of all, Kola Kavon. Thank you. Now regarding Israel, yeah, I interviewed Prime Minister Rabin when I was six or seven. I started my career and I interviewed Rabin of Blessed Memory, Shimon Perez of Blessed Memory, and the Power Rangers also of Blessed Memory. The Power Rangers? On, on, on the, <laughs> Yeah, the power, they came to Israel. They had a whole show. Yeah, one summer. So I interviewed all, I was this young girl with the glasses and the mic, you know, holding the mic, in, interviewing all of them in one summer for, for Israeli TV, for sure. Yeah, that's my my history. But regarding current, I would say current event uh, events, current situation, I think it's, uh, something is changing in, in, in world politics. You see it in the States. You see it in London. I just came back from London. Three prime ministers in, in three months and here in Israel. There's deep, I there's deep so, unrest around the world. Exactly. Something's not stable. And uh, I believe it's social media. We became more, I would say, hectic. Something's wrong with the way we speak. I mean, even this conversation, you know, you ask questions, I answer. It's an elite. It's like it, it becomes so rare, so unique. This kind of, you know, usually you shout uh, or you hit or you hit, you know, uh, um, uh, in a way you write things that you want will never say and you... You say things you don't really mean. And in a way, I see people, the way they change, you know, they 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 open a, a Twitter account and in a month you can't recognize them or an Instagram account and you can't recognize it from different reasons. It, it's really... The, I think social media brings the worst out of people. That's my consensus. Yeah, it also brings the best... Wait, wait a minute. I want to be, as always, it's not one, one-sided. It's it's complicated. There are great things on social media. I have my my daily WhatsApp every day, a daily message of Torah. I see people, the way it influences their life. But yes, something here is not balanced. I think I remember my childhood, things were more relaxed. Although we had fights and conflicts and disputes and elections, I think we should all check, um, like, uh, uh, social, um, in a way, uh, uh, maybe uh, we can all, can all go to a um, psychiatrist maybe and, and check our soul after five, six years of, of social media, I think we all, last five years, I think that was the main, the main change. That was the game changer. I don't have an, an accurate, you know, answer. Yeah. So uh, uh, turn off the clothes. All the, I think this, we should be aware. We should, we should completely for sure. Keep Shabbos at least for one day a week. But yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. I don't have an, a simple answer to the question. But how is, it playing, well, how is it playing a role, though, in Israeli politics? You're saying that it's part of the problem. Are you saying because people are not taking the time to sit down and have eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart conversations, and it's just like everyone's slinging insults at each other and who has the most popular reel and which picture got the most likes? It's, it's not happening on the ground. It's almost happening virtually, and then it just reflects on this animosity that unfolds on the streets. Yeah, the, the problem is we count likes. When I was a child, there was the rating, the daily rating. It was published every day in the morning at nine. We were waiting to see what was the rating last night. That is, it was the number of people watching us together, the whole show. Now we count, we check the rating every second, basically. And it's personal. It's just me. There's no show. There's no group. We don't play as, as a group. It's, it's so individual. And the more you share, the more popular you are. You know, when I was a teenager, we used to ask if a tree falls in the in the middle of the night in a forest and nobody was there, there was no one there, was there really a sound? You know, that was a philosophical question. Sure. And today we can ask if two girls went to the mall, but they didn't upload a photo, did they really go? I'm not sure they went to the mall. I mean, it's, it becomes 
If you don't publish, it, it never happened. How do you create something that is intimate? When it comes to my husband, my kids, my parents, the connection with Hashem, with myself, with good friends, with Torah, everything that is important is not there. It's not a, it doesn't disappear after 24 hours, you know, a story, boom, disappears. Our story is much, I would, I would think more, more essential and eternal. So how, that I don't have, as I said, I just want us to be, to have the awareness and to discuss it together and find solutions. Uh, and I, I truly believe Shabbat, it's part of the remedy, the cure we need, the human beings, you know, the humanity. But it's not enough. We should think about Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays. How are we? I mean, our sanity, that's, yeah, it, it bothers me. It can't be fixed by everybody telling everybody else what to do. We each have to look inside and say, what can I do better? How can I contribute to this conversation in a respectful way? And if everybody does that, we'll be on the path to healing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Why am I, by, by the way, you know what's the main, I think the main challenge is, I just spoke with with a good friend about it. I think davening, you know, praying, tefillah, it, you don't get any immediate feedback, immediate satisfaction, no two blue checks from Hashem. So why is it important? What's the meaning of a word? I, I say something and I don't get, nobody hears. It's not, I don't upload, what's going on here? I, I believe that's going to be the main spiritual challenge. Believing Hashem hears us. Uh, although it's not, it's not, it's, this is the real social media. I mean, that's the network. I believe in, in a few years we'll all see that's the the real thing because, you know, chesed, tzedakah, you see, you understand, uh, uh, you know, what, the results. You see that what what it, you know, what happens in the world. Uh, even if you learn, you learn Torah, so you have new information. It's interesting. Saying the same shacharit every day, I believe that's going to be the challenge. We should be prepared and learn more about it. That's that's what I think. You're a journalist. You've always been a journalist. Um, you're a mother, obviously. But five years ago was really when you stepped into your role as a, a Torah leader, I would say, a teacher. Do you feel that our community needs more female role models? And it, it, this is a loaded question, so hang in there. And if so, how can we encourage our girls to take on leadership positions when we live in a day and age where the erasure of women in print media has become normalized? So, so again, you became stronger in your presence um, in our community as a teacher, but at the same time, in the last 10 years or so, women are getting the message that they shouldn't be seen. Yeah. Um, I believe you. I work on Channel 12. <laughs> women are seen. Sometimes uh, I don't like the way uh, they treat women, women there. Maybe it's the other extreme way of treating women. So that's where I work. I, that's, that's Unfortunately, sometimes that's what I represent, you know, uh, commercial breaks, uh, reality shows. Most of the criticism I get is about, and I completely disagree with that attitude. So maybe that's the, you know, the extreme uh, other way of, of looking at, at, at women as, as the part of humanity. In a way, I think my message for the girls is, first of all, learn and know more and, and teach and find something that will force you. By the way, it's a great tip for, for men too. Find a system or create a method that will force you to do what your neshama really wants. Our soul really wants to do good things, to learn Torah. I am quite lazy and quite busy. And I have five kids, Bo Hashem, and I work in a few places, many places on, on Israel and abroad. I give lectures abroad. I'm forced to write the daily WhatsApp. Otherwise, I will not just sit here, you know, L'Shem Shamaim, just for, you know, to learn as a, I'm not a tzaddika, I'm not such a, you know, holy person. And we're all 24-7, we're all, we're, we all have the, you know, destructions and, and important tasks, things we should do. Force yourself, young girls, force yourself to learn. It means create a system. Maybe you say Advar Torah every Shabbos, you know, during the meal at night. Maybe once a week you are engaged, but people know, people expect you, you'll speak in, in your classroom or your uh, youth movement in the afternoon or on a WhatsApp group you are supposed to write before Shabbos. It's your, you take it upon yourself. You write a short a commitment. You understand? Yeah, commitment. That's the word. Commitment. You commit yourself. Otherwise, this is what I, I have a weekly shiur and the daily WhatsApp. Otherwise, sometimes maybe I can't even remember what the parsha is. Seriously, seriously. It forces me to do what I really want to do. It, by the way, it's true when it comes to diets or, or 
Uh, it's spoiled. discipline. Exactly. Exactly. We must create, especially today, the world is so confusing. Everything is so attractive, accessible, available. And there's no boundaries and there's no boundaries. You have to just be, exactly. this is my routine. This Find is what's important commitment. to me. But what about the reassure of women? <laughs> Not letting you off the hook yet. Do you feel that the girls should push back at it or ignore it? Like, what is your take on, on that? Big issue, hot topic issue. Well, I'm, I'm not familiar with the scene in the States. I, do you do you refer to the fact that Haredi magazines, they don't publish pictures yes. of women? I don't want to force anyone. No, yeah, no. You know, if there's a Hasidish or Haredi magazine, by the way, they quote me. I, I'm flattered when they take the text, the, the essence of what I write, and they quote it with my name. I'm, I'm flattered. I don't want to force people, just like I don't want other um, I would say places that are more liberal, more progressive, more, you know, uh, they will force me to do certain things. I can open my magazine. I can do whatever I want. You can look at my internet site or my accounts on, you know, social media. I put pictures that I think they're they're fine. They're okay. They're not, uh, you know, when it comes to tznut, something very delicate, very, I would say, um, it's hard to define. It's really hard to define. And this way, you can say, okay, but look, there's everything. On my Instagram account, there's everything. Why should I still keep you know, why should I still care what you see? It's just, you know, in, in a minute you see everything basically. No, I still, I feel it's my responsibility. I'm the editor. So in a way I post what I want to post. I'll never force someone because it's it's risky. It's dangerous. Although, you know, I have my agenda, my perspective. I'm, women should be seen and heard in, in the right way, in the modest way. I, I That's what I do. But still. So you're saying if you don't like it, do it differently. Yeah, I, I'll never, I'll never tell, you know, I'm not familiar with, with the, newspapers, but I'm not... The same as here. The same as here. Ami, Mishpacha. I'm not, you know, I, I always feel like a guest. I have many things to say about the secular sector where I grew up. I, I have lots of criticism and lots, lots of things I want to change. And in the more modern Orthodox sector, oh, wow, I have so many things to say. And the Haredi society, wow. <laughs> we can talk about it for hours. I see the problems. I'm not, I see things that I disagree. I, I you know, I, I'm a... Per my, my attitude, uh, for, first of all, there are many conflicts here in Israel, too, when I'm really familiar with the facts and I still choose not to, you know, you'll never, my husband, he always laughs at me. Yeah, he says, if I Google Sivan Rav Meir is against something, Google will never give me, you know, the, uh, any results. I mean, you're always pro, you're always positive. <laughs> I have so many things I'm, you know, I disagree with. But yeah, maybe, I don't know, I chose maybe as a, as a guest. I didn't grow up, you know, from, I always learn new things. I don't think it's my uh, mission to go into those sectors and change them, it, it, including my parents, the secular sector of Ramat Aviv and, and Ramat Sharon and Herzliya, where I grew up. Maybe it's part of my, you know, the system. The, that's, uh, I, I don't tell people what to do. I do whatever I want. And if people want, they join, they they, they agree and they want more. But um, maybe maybe I'm innocent. I don't know. Maybe it's it's no, easier. No, you're not innocent. You're smart. Yeah, no, you're maybe smart. it's easier. You never do anything. You never say, uh, I'm, when I'm on Twitter, I feel like, whoa, what are the rules here? You should attack five peoples every day. I don't know. <laughs> the rule is just to put your head down and run away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I feel, feel like I know what your answer is going to be now that we've been speaking for a little bit. But what do you say to, to those who are struggling with Israel's PR abroad? So... You know, do you think my listeners should get involved in pro-Israel journalism online? Because you said that journalism is in your blood, but also that we could all be journalists. Yeah, so yeah. how can how, how can American Jews defend Israel on social media? And can you reinforce the importance of their advocacy? Wow. Yeah, for sure. Thank you very much for Israel and for Judaism. I think in a way in this generation, it's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's the same mission. Uh, thank you in advance. You are all ambassadors. Uh, if you're, if uh, no official appointment, no salaries, but in a way, you're ambassadors. When you go out as a Jew, as a proud, engaged, devoted Jew, connected to Israel, connected to Jewish organizations, to to when you have your own shul, in a way, you are ambassadors. So thank you as an Israeli citizen for that. And I believe um, it's a it's a mut mutual, you know, solidarity. Uh, uh, um, it's it's a good question. Should you fight with people all day? Because uh, sometimes there are like the ten percent of people you will never persuade them. You will never convince them. They will never. They are there. You know, Hashem, Mashiach will help them. But they make all the you know all the noise, all the mess. And you can spend your whole life, you know, time, energy, efforts, uh, and those those ten percent will never change. 
and you ignore the, I would say, 80%. And imagine we are the 10% that are, let's say, the you, we know the truth. We're pro-Israel, we're pro-Shabbat, we're pro-Jewish values. And they're like 80% there, Jews and non-Jews alike, in the middle. They're quiet. They're confused. They don't know. By the way, they're not familiar with the facts the 20%, you know, the 10 plus 10, they know everything. They quote, they send you links. The 80%, I met so many unaffiliated Jews in the States. I think it's it's much more, I would say, urgent and crucial, you know, going to them, influencing them. And by the way, it's not just on social media because asking them to come to this event, another joining, coming to Israel for sure, birthright programs, Masat, Taglit, uh, Jewish mothers, you know, momentum, great projects. For the first, I see them. Last Shabbos, I saw them at the Kotel, the first first time in Israel. It's so important. But ask them to come for Shabbos. Ask them to join you in a certain holiday. Chanukah, Pesach, Purim. I don't care. It's like, this is real. In a way, yeah, that's real advocacy. Taking one soul. I I, I, I quit, you know. I For years, I tried to fight, you know, to, to explain my attitude. And then I saw... All they do all day, those 10%, all they do all day is, you know, attract, you know, it's, it's, don't waste your, your time uh, on them. Think about the 80 quiet percent. I, I believe that's, that's my message. That's good advice. Okay. How do you feel about the Palestinians mm. <laughs> off the record? <laughs> mm. We have great neighbors, right? Great neighbors. Amazing. The best. Yeah, Can't New, ask York, for New Jersey, Tel Aviv, Gaza. Yeah. Great neighbors. <laughs> Listen. I was a real activist. When I was a teenager, I was part of Noah Meretz. You know, it's a left party, really, in the mm-hmm. left. And Noah Shalom Achshav, the Peace Now movement, the youth movement of Peace Now, Shalom Achshav. It's really... It, it doesn't get more left than yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It's really in the left. And we supported Oslo agreements. We thought Arafat, Yasser Arafat, will bring essential peace to the Middle East. We just had to give land and get peace. And that was my, you know, perspective when I was 15. Hashem. As a mature mother today, as an adult, reality changed. Most Israelis, understand, we understand every meter you give them will become, in a way, um, a land of, of, of terror, uh, anti-democratic uh, uh, things. They do their violence. By the way, violence among themselves. They kill themselves, themselves sometimes more than they kill us. I mean, unfortunately, not all of them. And I don't want to be, you know, uh, no... Uh, Racism, but yeah, something there is extreme terrorists or extreme people who choose violence as as that's their way to to um uh, uh to speak in a way to say what they want. They don't speak. They uh, they kill people. They kill innocent Jews. And um, when you compare it to Abraham Accords, you see there is. I'm I'm on my way to Dubai by the way tomorrow for, for lectures. When you you see you can reach essential, true, real peace. In different way, they are much, you know, healthier and 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 higher in a way. No, we don't give any land. We just, you know, uh, we're the sons of Abraham. I love the name Abraham Accords. When you compare it to Oslo agreements, Oslo, it's in Europe, it's foreign. Abraham, we're all the sons. Really, we're the sons of Abraham. We want to live it together. This, you know, for 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 the sake of every everyone, basically. So, um, unfortunately, I don't think Israel today, the world, if you look at it in a in an honest way, you understand the but we are part of the solution and they are part of the problem. What 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 can I do? I mean, uh, you can't help them if they they don't want to help themselves. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, when people listen, it's going to be tomorrow, Thursday. Gimel Tamas, uh, your your forty second uh, birthday was a few days ago, by the way, Mazel Tov. <laughs> Right, and you sh- you shared a vart about the Labavitcher Rebbe's birthday campaign, one of the Mifsayim, on your daily WhatsApp. You talk and you refer to the Labavitch Rebbe often. Today's his yard site for people listening. He was a Goyan, a tremendous Talmud Chacham, and a huge tzaddik. I was privileged to be in his presence many times throughout the course of my childhood. How has the Rebbe personally inspired your observance and passion for Kiruv HaKroivim, as the Rebbe called it? Not Kiruv HaChaikim, Kiruv HaKroivim. Can you share a little bit about what the Rebbe has taught you as wow. a, from Jew? Um, I think... Uh, First of all, I became observant at the age of 15. And I first heard about the rabbi at the age of 25. So it's like a new level, I would say, uh, of observance of Judaism. Because first of all, the basic things, Shabbat, Kashrut, 
חגים, תרי"ג מצוות, זה הלכה. That was the beginning of the process at the age of 15. But then I discovered a whole new world. You know, Baruch Hashem, I had the bases. It, it was balanced because I had the base and then, wow, <laughs> I was overwhelmed uh, to see because in a way the conflict disappeared when I discovered the Rebbe. I felt, I felt there's a contradiction, you know. I work on TV. I do things, you know, very professional things out there, career. comes to money and rating and success and makeup and you have a dresser it's like uh, but you want to be a from Jew with a Torah and holiness and mitzvot and a mother and educate your kids and in a way the Rebbe's perspective it's not just the conflict disappeared this is your shlichut you are on shlichut not just when you're a mother but when you're like an MC when you host a show you're on shlichut always and we're all shlichim Always. That's, that's, I think that's the revolutionary concept. The Rebbe, the Rebbe said, if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. Exactly. Exactly. If you know Aleph, teach Aleph. That's it. So you have no excuses anymore. No explanations. No, no. Later, I'll do it when I know. No, you know, no, no excuses. Uh, Rabbi uh, Johnson Sachs told me, but he shared it with the world, the story about the Rebbe, the way he entered this room, this holy room as a student. He wanted to be an, I don't know, a lawyer. And he went out as Rabbi Sachs because the Rebbe told him what is your, he asked the Rebbe so many questions and the Rebbe asked him, replied and said, it's not you asking me, it's me asking you. How many Jews are learning in, in your campus? He had no answer. How, you don't know, how come? I mean, how many Jews are there with you? What are your plans? In- he wanted accountability, the Rebbe. He said, no, what's on the program? Exactly. What's the plan? Exactly, exactly. You have to always work harder, always do more. It's crazy. Once again, you did yeah things. That's that. It's not. He doesn't like it when I, he says, "Yeah, the Rebbe gives you the permission to be a workaholic." <laughs> But I believe I the Rebbe believe didn't it. stop. The Rebbe didn't stop for 50 years. He didn't leave Crown Heights. Uh, he left Crown Heights twice in 50 years, both to go upstate to to Gan Yisrael summer camp. Nachon, nachon. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Okay, but we're not the Rebbe. We should be influenced. You know, this is good. It should, it should influence our life to do more. But also in the house, I believe my shlichut, sometimes it's easier to go out to Dubai and give lectures and sometimes stay, staying with five kids and taking care of the sandwiches in the morning. It's always, <laughs> this is also a very important shlichut. It depends, you know, you should also remember yes, this. I am aware. <laughs> so, Baruch Hashem. Wow, wow, yeah. The Rebbe definitely taught us that we all play a role in refining the world And that when we dig a little deeper, we see each other's essence, we see each other's uh, potential, and we can tap into that and light each other's flame with, with the inspiration that comes from within. Like you said, when you learn, you get inspired, and then you could just bring that to the next Jew and, and light their fire. So I think that's something we definitely learned from the Rebbe. Okay, before I let you go, and I'm going to let you go momentarily, you, people, you have your daily WhatsApp translated in how many languages? 17, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. So people listening can subscribe. I'm going to put a link in my show notes and hopefully you'll get a whole bunch of new members. I, I read through them the last few days. They're short, sweet, and to the point. They're, they're palatable and inspirational and just, and I heartily recommend that people subscribe. Um, you also have a book called Days Are Coming. So I'll put a link for that. And that's a, a number of anecdotes yeah. that, that... Let me just do the, the, do the mitzvah. Let me just perform the mitzvah of the commercial break. Okay, one, Days Are Coming. Koren Magid <laughs> Publisher, you can Google it. and It's on Amazon, Days Are Coming. Two, Daily WhatsApp. Google my name with the, the words uh, Daily WhatsApp and subscribe in English, Hebrew, plus 15 other languages. You can get a daily message every morning for free. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Tell me something, maybe one of your most interesting, funny, unique experiences that you've had in this world of journalism, because I've been doing this now for... about a year and something. I'm not a journalist by any stretch of the imagination, but talking to people has definitely changed my perspective. It has, I think, made me a better person and it has given me such amazing, fun, unique experiences. <laughs> it's just, it's really a fun feel to be in if you have a passion for it. So to share with us just a little bit something maybe people have never heard, a cool story or just something that, that happened to you over the years of your career. Wow. First of all, I thought you're doing it for years. So you're great if it's just a year. So go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I've been performing for 20 years. I've been singing yeah, for 20 yeah, yeah, years. That, but that, yeah, but this is a new thing. That I know. Uh, I believe, uh, I'll give you just one little example. I, there's a famous sentence. Uh, it goes like this. Uh, every evening uh, on the news uh, at eight, 
we tell you good evening, and then we prove to you for an hour why it's not a good one. Erev tov, ra, 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 ra. So I love that. I try to uh, change that assumption, that equation, and say Erev tov and fill it with good content. That's what I do. So just, I'll give you one example, but Baruch Hashem, it happens uh, on a daily basis. Uh, a family from the city of Dimona in the south of Israel, uh, Buzaglo family, they wrote something very interesting. They said, nobody... Um, noticed that Kaftet uh, Sivan, we just started the month of Elul, Kaftet Sivan was the day the Meraglim, the spies were sent from the desert to Eretz Israel. The mission started at Kaftet Sivan and it lasted for 40 days. How can we fix, correct, change the atmosphere on those 40 days, 40 days that led to the Cheta Meraglim, the scene of the spies and awful days, it, it, at the, the end of the, uh, the 40 days, the last days, Tisha Be'av, and they cried, and it was it was a mistake, a huge mistake. And they um to, to dislike Eretz Israel and they wanted to stop the journey to, to it was a whole it was a tragedy. Those 40 days that the Buzaglos from Dimona, they say, let's learn good things about Eretz Israel. Uh for those and, and let's start Kaftet Sivan. So they started, they sent me a beautiful piece about how good and holy and inspiring Eretz Israel is. And they, they uh, hosted something in, in their house that 100 people came to this Eretz Israel party, you know, we're, we're correcting the, we're uh, deleting the sin. And it, it's a new heritage, you know, I, I, I'm, it's the first time I'm sharing this idea. I'm speaking about it. I wrote about it for the first time. Now I'm spe- it's a beautiful, just imagine thousands of people also from uh, the States and London, they were in touch with them and they want to do it there. It's just a way of looking at reality. It's not just the month of Tammuz and Sivan. No holidays, nothing happened. No, we can, you know, uh, we can uh, Im- uh, do something relevant. The timing is 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 important. And we can now do what the spies didn't do uh, 3,000 years ago. Just one example. It, it's something they sent me three days ago, okay? Uh, you can, your listeners can send me the next idea, okay? And I'll- so you're saying you learn as much from your audience and your listeners yeah, as they yeah, learn yeah. from you. For sure. I love that. Sivan, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I always tell people when you come to Israel, we'll have a cup of coffee, but you're already here. So uh-huh. we'll take a selfie the next time I see you. For, for thank sure. Thank you very, very but much. But I'll come to Bishemesh. <laughs> that, that's the real thing. That's the real place today. <laughs> Listen, people ask where, where I live. I tell them that the hills of Yerushalayim, and I'm not lying. I'm thrilled to be here. Baruch Hashem. I breathe in the air, and I'm like, it's, it's a gift. You're great. Thank you very much, Hanale. Thank you, all the listeners. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Episode 119 of the Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to order your Queen Tulsi and use Hanale 15 at checkout. Don't forget to subscribe to my show. Drop it in a family WhatsApp. Everyone else is doing it. And be sure to check out every episode, Mondays and Thursdays, your favorite guests, your favorite hot topics, and your favorite hosts. I'll see you all on Monday.